Hello, I'm Dennis McLevy uh, with CFA Institute, and I'm here today with another of our Take 15 series on market and credit risk. Today, the topic is inflation risk. I'd like to welcome Chris Finger. Chris is head of research for Risk Metrics Group. Uh, Chris, I know you're based in uh, Geneva, and you have some interesting views on isolating inflation risk. With CFA Institute, we're very interested in pension fund management. And so, of course, we look at liabilities and try to do something about the inflation risk in, in liabilities. I'm wondering if you could say a few words about that. Sure. I, pensions is really what caught our eye and, and was the impetus to, to really take a closer look at this market, both a couple of years ago and now again um, this year. Um, pensions represent the sort of most, one of the most natural ways of getting exposed explicitly to inflation. And I'll say explicitly throughout the course of this that this is different from just uh, being exposed to inflation because the equity markets tend to do a different thing when inflation is high versus low, et cetera. This is about an explicit link. And so from the pension point of view, you have liabilities that are linked to future salaries and are indexed to particular um, indexes of inflation. And so there you've got an explicit link to inflation. So there's a natural uh, exposure that pensions have through the course of their business um, to inflation indices. Um, what's developed on the asset side, which has started to make us look at it a lot more, are, there's probably more, but really two uh, distinct markets um, to also reference inflation. One is the inflation-linked bond market, um, and the other is the inflation swap market, um, both of which, among other things, provide pensions with a way of hedging the natural inflation exposure that they have um, through their liabilities with financial assets that might become part of their investment portfolio. And the problem with the um, inflation-linked bond is that I'm exposed both to inflation and to interest rate risk? Yeah, certainly that's one of the concerns um, in the bond world in that, um, okay, it, it provided a nice set of assets, for instance, for pensions to start thinking about hedging their liabilities, their natural exposures um, to inflation. Um, unfortunately, they come with other baggage. Um, you uh, you are certainly dependent on the issuance calendar of whatever government um, or entity right, that's, right. that's issuing these things. Um, you're exposed to any uh, liquidity problems, et cetera, from a, an actual cash bond market. Um, but I think most importantly is that you've got the interest rate risk wrapped up with the inflation risk. And so you don't have a way of disentangling um, you, you have to go get interest rate risk as well as inflation risk, um, whereas maybe all you're trying to hedge is this exposure to inflation that you've got um, through your liabilities. So what about interest rate swaps then? So, or, sorry, inflation swaps. Yeah, so inflation swaps present, a, in a sense, a cleaner exposure to, to inflation. And so the mechanics there, um, the typical inflation swap is uh, what some folks would call a, a zero swap. Um, so this is the most common swap where uh, you and I, if we wanted to swap inflation, we would agree on a fixed rate. Say, I might agree to pay you uh, 4% per year, um, kind of a high rate, but let's say 4% per year um, over some time frame, let's say, let's say five years. Um, and in return, you would pay me at the end of those five years the increase on the inflation index we cared about. So, for example, the, the United States Consumer Price Index, um, I'd pay you the 4% per year. You'd pay me um, the inflation that actually happened. And so this is an exposure to nothing but moves in, in the CPI. 
Um, and so it's a nice way of isolating. Um, it also gives you a chance to be on either side of the trade. Um, okay. And it also immunizes us, in a sense, from sort of the technicals and liquidity that that exists from being in a cash bond market. And, and how is that market developing? Um, Inflation-linked swaps, or inflation swaps, um, uh, more precisely said, um, are now quite liquid, quite well established in the UK, um, where I think uh, the development of this market has probably led um, other parts of the world. They're also um, fairly heavily traded in France um, on, on a couple of the different uh, flavors um, of inflation that exist there. Um, not quite as established yet in the U.S., um, but I certainly don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen um, as time goes by. And how are they being used then in pension fund management? Well, I think the, the biggest usage is to to get exposure to inflation where the bonds don't afford it or the bonds don't give you quite the right mix of maturity profile, interest rate risk, et cetera. Um, and so it's a way of tailoring a bit um, the types of exposure to inflation that might exist. Um, now, once you've got a couple of different asset classes or a couple of different types of ways of, of getting exposed to this stuff, then you also wind up with um, sort of, in a sense, pure relative value or pure alpha investors um, getting interested. So um, this gives hedge funds a way of making very tailored bets um, on inflation, of playing the bonds versus the swaps and so on. And can you describe this concept of break-even inflation? Yeah, so break-even inflation, um, in a sense, is the inflation that's implied by the market. And so we, we tend to focus, certainly, any of the headline inflation numbers that we see are typically realized inflation. Mm -hmm. It's what was the index reported last month, how much did inflation go up last month, uh, what was the comparison of that versus a year ago, and so on. Um, break-even inflation is... Uh, what we get when we look at the pricing on either an inflation-linked bond or an inflation swap and say, well, what rate of inflation would have to occur in the future to, to more or less explain where this thing is being priced today? So it's, it's the inflation rate that we would infer from, from the pricing in the marketplace. And so as such, it's, it's in a way the market's expectation um, about future inflation. Okay. So it's really implied inflation. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And now, when you look at the world, you divide it up into risk factors. And I'm just wondering, in general, what are the risk factors that you use? Um, in general, I mean, if, if, we, uh, if we look across lots of asset classes, these are the, the basic raw market factors that would be driving the different types of financial instruments that, that our clients might hold. So that might be... Um, it points on the interest rate curve um, for a bond portfolio, um, implied volatilities for a derivatives portfolio, equity factors for an equity portfolio, um, and so on. But in general, there's some degree of, of abstraction that it's not the specific securities, but we're trying to distill the risks on a, an asset class into a small number of factors. So. There's a lot of bonds out there, but we do a pretty good job explaining most of what goes on with bonds with one yield curve. And certainly, as you take other issuers, you have to sort of add to that. Um, but the idea is to bring it back into a set of things that both give you nice behavior statistically, um, but also simplify the problem in, in a sense and, and allow you to get your head around what all the sources of risks are. So for you then, what, what would you call a good risk factor then? Um, 
I, I guess it really breaks down to those two things. It's uh, one that it's intuitive that we care when we say, okay, you're exposed to a certain risk factor in, in a certain way. Um, uh, I feel like if, if that's a purely statistically derived factor without a lot of intuition around it, um, while it might be very good for forecasting or something else, it's hard to say that it's giving people a very good picture of the risks that they have. Um, so it, we like it to be something that has to do with the market, that has to do with um, how people think about what they're trading. The other aspect is that it allows us to do good forecasting, and so that there is a statistical angle here that we don't want to we don't want to pick something that um, isn't going to be useful from the point of view of trying to predict how volatile is this going to be in the future, where might it go, et cetera. Okay, so I'm thinking now. I understand the idea of inflation swaps and inflation-linked bonds, and I'm trying to think about implementing this now. What have I learned here, and how do I want to use it? I, I think the to us the the big the, the big achievement that that we needed to get to was that we talk about the different ways that somebody can be exposed to inflation in a consistent way. So um, in, a, in a simple sense, you've got the explicit inflation exposures that might come out of pension liabilities. Um, you have the inflation-linked bond market. You have the inflation swap market. Um, because all of those markets developed at different times with different players, they tended to develop different conventions, different ways of talking about inflation risk. And in a sense, that was a hindrance once we wanted to start saying things like, well, if I, if I as a pension fund have this much risk um, through my liabilities, how much of that am I canceling out by this inflation bond position um, in my assets or this okay. swap position, et cetera? So we wanted, in a sense, a common language to, to go across those. Um, and so what we wound up choosing was break-even inflation um, that we discussed earlier as something that made sense in all of those contexts. Um, and so you have this notion of portability that um, if I talk about uh, break-even inflation, um, how that might change over time, et cetera, that means something in the context of the bond market, in the context of the swap market, and in the context of the, of the actual liabilities that a pension might hold. So, But there's no distinction between break-even and implied inflation? Yeah, I, I would use those words pretty much interchangeably. Um, okay. I, uh, Maybe a little bit sloppy with the terminology, but okay. But then, okay. So I'm a pension fund, and um, I have assets and liabilities. How am I calculating this break-even inflation? Um, I guess there's there's two steps. The the break-even inflation is really not so much a function of your specific liabilities, your specific assets, but rather something that the market is telling us. Mm -hmm. um, so we would no, uh, but I, I'm thinking of my own risk exposure. So the idea then would be to to link your exposures and how the value of those may change in the future to break-even inflation. So we can observe break-even inflation today. We can observe it going backwards. So mm -hmm. what has been the market's mm -hmm. uh, implied inflation, expected inflation um, over time? And if we think about that as something that drives the value of what you hold, um, that you know, if expected inflation goes up, your liabilities, if they're linked to inflation, are going to start looking more expensive. Um, now, have you hedged that by virtue of, of buying bonds um, and so on? Um, and so the idea would be to link um, what you hold, both from the assets and the liabilities point of view, to these um, central risk factors. Um, 
and then say something about where those might go. Given what we know about how break-even inflation has evolved in the past, is evolving, what we know about seasonal patterns, et cetera, what can we say about how volatile it might be over the next month, over the next six months? Um, and if, if we have the link from break-even inflation to your assets and liabilities, if we have a model that says something about where break-even inflation might go, we put those the two things together, and that tells us where your assets and your liabilities might go, and if, in fact, you have hedged out the risk that, that you think you've hedged out. Okay. And so so presumably I, I have a set of risks, and you're isolating this break-even inflation as one of my risks? That's right. So um, overall, what we'd like to be able to do is, is talk about um, – you, know, you have your you have your liabilities that you owe. You have your assets that you own. Um, and clearly, as a pension fund, you're worried that the the gap between those is always sort of comfortable. Um, that the amount of assets is um, comfortably more than the uh, the present value of the liabilities that you're likely to owe. Um, so what we'd like to do is say something about how overall that gap might change and. Are we at risk that it goes to zero? Are we at risk that we become mm-hmm. underfunded, et cetera? Now, there are a variety of things that could make that unfundedness case happen. One is moves in inflation mm-hmm. um, if you're not appropriately hedged. And so that would be one of the sources of risk that we'd want to talk about. But there are other things as well. Obviously, interest rates are a big component um, mm-hmm. to the extent there's a, a reasonable equity allocation on the asset side. The equity market is a big component. So... We'd like about, we'd like to talk about the total, uh, risk in the, sort of the funded status of the pension fund, but I think more interesting, we'd like to talk about where that comes from. Does it come from a mismatch on inflation, on interest rates, et cetera? Right, right. And so, the big advantage then for this common language that you're talking about? The big advantage is that it, it lets us talk about one inflation risk and, and to talk about, um, it, are hedges working when I think they should be working? Um, and I think the the big thing we wanted to avoid was um, certainly talking about bonds in terms of real rates, which mm-hmm. has been the terminology that sort of developed as a convention with the inflation-linked bond market. A different sort of a, a different risk factor for the swap market, and yet another one for the um, for the liabilities, and not be able to put those all together and say, you know. You've got a big risk here on the liability side, a big risk here on the asset side, but guess what? They're kind of in the, the opposite directions, and if we put them together, there's only a small residual left. We can't do that if we're talking about those two sides with a different language. Well, now, since inflation swaps come closer to isolating inflation risk, would I infer then that I ought to be thinking more about inflation swaps rather than inflation-linked bonds? or? Certainly, as a product, they're cleaner, and to tailor the inflation exposure, um, they are more attractive. Um, paying for inflation in the inflation swap market is slightly more expensive okay. than buying it in the bond market. So you have the cost side to also worry about, um, and this is where sort of there's this hedge fund angle as well, that to the extent there is this gap in cost for what you can distill down more or less to the same risk, then there start to be interesting arbitrage kinds of opportunities, and so that's why we've got sort of another set of fish um, swimming in this pool looking for chances to uh, to make interesting trades. So hedge funds are making interesting trades then on inflation swaps? Yeah, I think the, the inflation swap market is a nice place to be. Um, 
uh, it allows being on both sides of the trade, so making positive and negative bets on inflation, making bets on the curve, so saying that mm-hmm. I have a view about inflation not so much over the next 10 years, but mm-hmm. I think the, the inflation likely to occur from five years out to 10 years is different from what the market might be implied. So maybe that's where I want to place a bet. Um, I think that inflation swaps look particularly expensive versus bonds. And so that's a trade I want to put on, et cetera. So the fact that there's lots of different ways to get exposed to what, again, is the same fundamental risk um, mm-hmm. is what, um, in a sense, has made the market interesting um, for hedge funds as well as sort of the natural users um, in terms of pensions. Now, I still think in terms of real rates. So tell me why I should buy into the... Thinking in terms of real rates, um, particularly in the bond market, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Um, And real rates, if if we go back to the analogy that I talked about before with the currencies, it's sort of the interest rates in that inflation-linked currency. So, you know, again, if I'm a dollar investor and invest in bonds denominated in euros, there's a euro interest rate curve that I'm exposed to. So that's kind of the way I think about real rates. Um, And as a factor for the bond market, Again, there's there's really nothing wrong with it. Um, the problem I have with it is when we start trying to pull things together. And there's not a natural meaning for real rates if we're talking about inflation swaps. And so now I don't have this chance to okay. say my inflation exposure from the bonds is somehow canceled by the swaps or offset by the liabilities, et cetera. So okay. um, it's when we go outside the bond world that real rates become problematic. Okay. And so really the bottom line is this idea of the common language that I can go across from from the bond market into into thinking about inflation swaps then. Yeah, and inflation swaps and also always with this link back to the liabilities as well. Right, right. Well, Chris, thank you very much. It's uh, very interesting to discuss inflation swaps and definitely be uh, keeping an eye on developing markets there. And thank you for joining us for another one of our Take 15 series in market and credit risk. Copyright 2008, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.